So before we get started, there is a trigger warning for this episode as we are talking about eating disorders. So if you feel that you're struggling with your relationship with food and you're wanting to seek help, a great place to start is the Butterfly Foundation or with your doctor or an eating disorder specialized health professional. Hello and welcome to the Embody Health Podcast. We're Kira and Meg, your dietitian BFFs. We're here to help you break free of diet culture, become besties with food and find peace with your body. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Embody Health Podcast. This week we're doing something a little bit different. We've got our fantastic guest Chelsea McCallum joining us today. Hello Chelsea. Hi Kia, thank you so much for having me. No worries, we're super excited to get into it. But before we get started, a little bit of a background about Chelsea. So Chelsea is an online dietitian based in Brisbane, Australia. She founded the IBS Relief Program, a completely digital solution helping IBS sufferers from all over the world, Australia, New Zealand, US, Canada, UK, Europe, and more. She specializes in irritable bowel and the low FODMAP diet. In this episode, we're going to be unpacking gut health myths that we commonly see in clinic and online. So there's one question that we always like to ask our guests on the podcast, and this one is, what is one thing that most people don't know about you? Sure, Meg. Thank you so much. One thing that people might not know about me is prior to being a full-time dietitian and seeing clients online, uh, I was a full-time recipe developer, and that really was a point where I could combine my love for food and also the clinical skills that I have as a dietitian as well. Um, But I miss that clinical element and that's ultimately what got me into seeing clients again, but combining that with meal planning for them and making sure they've got lots of delicious recipes. That sounds really cool. You must be a good cook. Well, I do like cooking. I make a big mess. Thank goodness (laughs) I've got a good dish hand at home. Yeah, there you go. That's the perfect combo, right? You make the food, they can clean it up. (laughs) Um, So what inspired you to become a dietitian and who do you generally work with in practice? I feel really lucky to have always wanted to be a dietitian going through high school. I had a really clear plan. I wanted to graduate, go straight into something like nutrition and dietetics. And I feel really lucky that I was able to get in, finish the degree and get right into the work um, as a nutritionist, dietitian and seeing clients. Um, And I guess it probably comes from a love of food and cooking, but also I really enjoyed biology and those two things made perfect sense to go into the field of dietetics. Um, And I work specifically with a population of people that have irritable bowel syndrome or other functional gut disorders. So that might be someone with Crohn's disease or colitis or inflammatory bowel disease, but I also work with other clients that might have celiac disease or other similar conditions. So a lot in the gut area. What got you so into working in that space? I've got, I guess, a history of having my own gut issues, which is something that came up whilst I was studying. And to be honest, back in my third and fourth year of university, you know, we talked a little bit about irritable bowel syndrome, but there would have been, you know, no more than 10 or 20 minutes talking about IBS, the low FODMAP diet, we concentrated so much on other things like heart disease and diabetes. So it's something that really got pushed out of my mind for a long period of time. But as I got older, went through more stressful scenarios in life, you know, graduating uni, applying for jobs, that's when I noticed symptoms progressively got worse. I realized I had to do something for myself, but even going into working clinically as a dietitian, I started seeing so many clients that Mm -hmm. had gut issues. They might come and see me for diabetes or weight loss or lowering cholesterol. But when you ask them about 
their pooping habits, everyone had something to talk about. So it was really that combination of having a history, but also seeing it so prevalent in society that I realized people really needed more help. Mm. Um, So I decided to just specialize in that field and I haven't looked back. It's a field that I really enjoy working in because you can make such a massive difference Mm. um, for people that do struggle day to day. Yeah, definitely. And like with IBS, it can be so like, obviously it's on a spectrum, but it can be so extremely debilitating. Mm. But I completely understand what what you say when you say like, you know, with uni, it's you, we barely cover it. Like we barely covered it as well. And that was like almost a slap in the face when you start working clinically and everyone starts, there are so many people with gut issues, you know, it's like mm-hmm. that unspoken thing. Mm-hmm. And this is why it is so important to find a dietitian that meets your particular concern mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Just like finding a, psych- a psychologist, it's the right fit or a GP finding a a dietitian that specializes in the area. So important. Mm -hmm. And I totally agree with that. You know, when I did first start seeing clients that had irritable bowel syndrome or similar gut issues and maybe not yet been diagnosed, um, I was daunted and scared and I didn't know how to provide the best care for them. So it's unfortunate that I've been that dietitian before as well that hasn't been able to provide the best help. And so many of my clients before working with me have worked with nutritionists, naturopaths, their doctors, other dietitians, and they feel so lost Mm. and frustrated. But I guess, you know, if you're tuning into this, don't give up. There are clinicians out there that are specialized in the field. And like you would get a plumber to fix your sink and not a carpenter, you should get a specific type of dietitian to help you with, you know, whatever concern you might have. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely see that within our space of the eating disorder space. You know, it's just having that extra specialist knowledge and having worked in the area for longer just you can you can help people so much more Mm. um but of course like not everyone is able to access that as well Mm. which makes it really difficult which is also great why why you have so much fantastic free social media content out there too yeah speaking of social media we want to know what you see as the most common misinformation being shared online about gut health because there is so much but what pops up really often It's got to be going completely gluten-free and dairy-free or having Mm. any blanket nutrition advice that's provided. You know, you think about the advice that you see online, it is tailored to suit the biggest population possible. So it's going to be that blanket advice. You know, if you are someone that has irritable bowel syndrome, um, IBS, or you have Crohn's or colitis, something, you know, within those similar symptoms, you don't have to be dairy-free and you don't have to be gluten-free. Of course, the exception to that rule is celiac disease. Um, or if you have a cow's milk protein allergy or if you've got a preference to be you know, vegan, vegetarian, whatever it might be, you don't have to cut out an entire food group or an entire group of anything um, unless it's medically advised by a practitioner that knows your medical history and knows what's going on with your symptoms. Um, so please, if you hear anyone online saying go gluten-free, dairy-free, or even your doctor says it, mm. take it with a grain of salt because it might actually not be the most accurate and correct advice for you and your gut health and managing symptoms moving forward. Mm, and it can often do more harm than good, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Another one that we see come up really often is SIBO. What are your thoughts on that? Small mm. intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's an interesting space. And honestly, if you asked me 10 years ago what I thought of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, I would have been completely unsure. I would have thought it was fake or made up, but more and more research is coming to light. And we're learning more about bacteria that can migrate from the large intestine to the small intestine, which is causing some really similar symptoms um, to those that 
um, people with IBS present with. So it's a lot of abdominal bloating, cramping, um, the pain, the distension, diarrhea, constipation as well. Um, but it's a condition that's unfortunately hard to diagnose um, and getting access to that diagnose, that diagnostic tools can be difficult as well. So I would never say that it's a myth and it's not real. It's hard to diagnose. It's difficult to treat as well, but it's absolutely a route that we might go down if someone with irritable bowel syndrome doesn't respond to typical low FODMAP diet and typical dietary interventions that we would use. Yeah. What's your thoughts on, I guess I agree as well. Like I think from my clinical practice, again, similar to you previously, I would have been like, no, it's not, not a thing, but the research is coming out, but it's also not strong. And I sometimes worry about the fact that sometimes alternative health practitioners might say that a patient's got SIBO mm. without kind of going through the whole formal testing mm. um, plus minus maybe put them on a strict elimination diet that doesn't really have any research behind it as mm. well. Mm. Have mm. you ever kind of experienced that? Yeah, I have seen that. Um, and I guess there are a few different scenarios where it might happen if the client doesn't have access to doing mm. a breath test. It can be quite difficult. And there's so many different ways, well, there's three main different ways to treat small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, So we have typical antibiotics, we have herbal antimicrobials, and then we've got the elemental diet as well. Um, And I guess the most important thing for people to know is you cannot treat SIBO with um, diet alone Mm. um, unless you're doing the elemental diet, which is a completely like meal replaced diet with um, fluid solutions. So that's the most important thing to know. You will need interventions to actually treat and eradicate the bacteria in the small intestine where they shouldn't be. Um, But often we use diet therapy to help reduce symptoms alongside it. Mm-hmm. What about testing for food intolerances? Because we see all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw, was it muscle energy testing or hair <sighs> testing? They've got the blood tests that you can order online. Mm-hmm. Which ones are evidence-based and which ones aren't? Unfortunately, um, you'll find that there are so many different tests. And I mean, you could Google food intolerance tests and a million and one will come up. Some will request a blood sample, a skin prick. Others will look for a hair sample. And I'm not sure what that muscle one was, but I don't want to know. Um, unfortunately, it was a kinesiology thing. Oh, yeah. Of course. <laughs> um, unfortunately, there's not much research behind these things. And, you know, they're testing for antibodies which should be present and they should be, you know, triggered because it's a normal healthy response. You'll find often the foods that you eat often are going to show up on, you know, your intolerance list because they're within your system at the time of testing. Um, The unfortunate thing is they're usually quite expensive and people will use them because they want an answer and they really Mm -hmm. want, you know, a physical tangible list of foods that they can cut out. But the best way for you to actually be pinning down and diagnosing a food intolerance is through elimination and then a reintroduction diet, similar to that of the low FODMAP diet. Mm. And so is there any food intolerance testing that's real or legit? No, when it comes to food intolerances, the only way that you will diagnose it is with that elimination reintroduction. But of course, allergies are a completely different kettle of fish and you'll need to see an allergist to have those tests done. So uh, a specialist doctor. Mm -hmm. Just kind of highlights the complexity of it, really, honestly, because like we are privileged to know that this is there like... We're privileged to know that intolerance testing is a myth because we've done nutrition studies, 
but I wouldn't have known that if I didn't do a degree at all and so a lot of the general population unfortunately you know are spending you know if they if they experience a food intolerance they don't quite know where to get help or they might not be getting help from the right professionals you know the first point of call is like okay I might do some of it myself get a food intolerance test yeah I totally agree with you you know a lot of my clients come to me disappointed or like embarrassed that they have made, you know, mistakes or decisions along their path. But how are they meant to know? You know, mm-hmm. they don't have a four year degree or more, right, mm-hmm. in nutrition and dietetics. And look, even us going through university, we weren't taught all of this stuff. This is extra research that we've done since graduating. So I always try and reinforce that with my clients. You know, it's not your fault that you've mm-hmm. made these mistakes. You just haven't had the right support system around you and the right guidance or someone to hold your hand and show you the way. Mm. I love that emphasis on self-compassion and being kind to yourself. Yeah, Absolutely. definitely, because you just don't know. Mm. You don't know. Mm. So moving on into a little bit more of a tricky space, um, can you tell us a little bit about how disordered eating affects our gut function or causes stomach issues? Mm. Of course. Well, you guys know better than most that there are so many different types of eating disorders and mm. the different forms of disorders can manifest in different aspects of our digestive system and our gut health as well you know if someone is undernourished and they're restricting the amount of food that they're eating they don't have the energy to process uh, food correctly through their digestive system so they might find that their digestive system slows down they have more constipation which causes discomfort bloating maybe they've got that distension as well Mm And of course, if we look at binge eating disorder as well, we see people have large volumes of food, um, which is going to put distress on the digestive system, but they could also be consuming foods that are high in FODMAPs or food chemicals that can cause really uncomfortable symptoms down the track. You know, it might be a few hours after they consume, they feel that they could have diarrhea, bloating, distension, constipation, you know, all of the above. Mm. Absolutely. It's interesting what you were saying about the impacts of not eating enough and undernourishing your gut. I've had at least, I think, three clients in the past couple of months who have come to me with gut issues that have been largely resolved by fueling properly. So by starting to eat a lot more food, Um, things like bloating and constipation, um, bowel movements becoming Mm. more regular. And it can be chronic underfueling without Mm. them even necessarily knowing as well maybe Mm. they're they're exercising a lot and they're just not eating enough or they thought that they were just eating healthy but it's Mm. quite low calorie Mm. and i think as well like you know the important thing to know is when you are starting your recovery journey as well it is actually pretty normal to experience a lot more gut discomfort because your gut is adjusting and getting used to it Um, but it can normalize and so even though maybe at the start of your journey a lot of people think that, oh, I'm starting to experience all these gut issues. Let me cut out X, Y, Z. That can actually do more harm than good. And so it's actually important to persevere. And I would sometimes say work on your gut stuff secondary to re-nourishing your body. Mm, mm, absolutely. Because then you've got the energy to actually mm-hmm. keep that digestion going, mm-hmm. um, which is so essential. And you're essentially retraining your gut to get mm-hmm. going again and process bigger volumes of food and more regular intakes of food you know if you go from eating one meal per day to three meals per day that's a bit of a shock to the system mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right so something that we see really often is that a lot of people start following the low fodmap diet often on their own um, or maybe as advised by like a doctor or a naturopath but perhaps they might have disordered eating or some kind of restrictive eating tendencies And we know the low FODMAP diet is quite restrictive. So for someone with IBS or functional gut issues, 
What are other options to improve their symptoms without following a strict diet? Mm, Great question. Um, And first, I'd probably like to unpack what the FODMAP diet is for people that don't know exactly what it is. It's a funny acronym. (laughs) Thanks, Chelsea. (laughs) It's probably not part of, you know, your normal language from day to day if you've never heard of it. Um, FODMAP is an acronym. You don't really need to know what it stands for, but I'll let you know anyway. (laughs) Um, It's fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides and polyols. Have I missed monosaccharides? <laughs> um, where do I start? <laughs> you can just leave that in. That's fine. <laughs> Fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. Try um, saying that ten times. Oh my really goodness! Fast. <laughs> and you know that's why we put it into an acronym, right? Because it's uh, these massive words all jumbled into one sentence. But essentially, FODMAPs—they're small carbohydrates. We find them in foods, and we find them in really healthy foods, which is. I guess the frustrating part, we find them in onion and garlic and mushrooms and cauliflower, mango, honey, sugar snap peas, like milk, you know, all of these foods are, I guess, part of a typical omnivore balanced diet, right? Um, But they can cause some really uncomfortable symptoms when you do consume them because they will draw fluid into the bowel. They would be rapidly fermented by the bacteria that live in your gut. So um, as a dietitian, we use the low FODMAP diet to help reduce someone's symptoms with IBS, but then ultimately we use it as a diagnostic tool as well to diagnose food intolerances. We bring FODMAP groups one by one back in and figure out which ones actually trigger your gut. So we know which ones we can build your tolerance up to or take a digestive enzyme or a probiotic, whatever it might be in that third and final phase of the process. But of course, the diet requires you to reduce your intake of some particular food groups so we're looking at um, things like fructans that's the onion and the garlic the bread but also some fruits and vegetables we're reducing uh, polyols which are things like cauliflower mushrooms peaches blackberries avocados we're looking to reduce lactose so milk yogurt ice cream so many different foods oh my goodness the list goes on and on right Mm. um and if we give someone all of these rules that they need to reduce particularly quickly are you chewing your food or are you just swallowing it whole you know um we can look (laughs) absolutely especially when people you know maybe working from home they're sitting at their desk not taking the time they need guilty guilty yep (laughs) we've all done it um so looking at the eating behaviors um we can look at the type of fiber that you've got in your diet currently if we can modify you know, just the types of foods that you're consuming. Um, Or if we want to put a fiber supplement in, we can look at toileting patterns as well if you're struggling with constipation. We even have something called the gentle low FODMAP diet or the gentle approach where we look to reduce only very highly concentrated FODMAP containing foods. And instead of getting you to restrict raspberries, we just focus on the foods that have no safe portion size. So things like onion and garlic and reduce as little as we can and I guess restrict any food rules that we can in that phase too. That was such a helpful overview. Thank you. Sorry, that was a long list. But that's really good because I think the thing is often when people have IBS or what I've experienced is especially if they haven't seen a dietitian first, they've maybe their doctors diagnosed them with IBS and gone, okay, you need to go on a low FODMAP diet. Might give them a one or two page sheet. Yeah, might not. And they think, oh, okay, this is all I've got to do. And maybe I've just got to go on the low FODMAP diet forever. But there's actually all these other approaches that can be really beneficial to use either before or in conjunction with the Mm. diet that can produce some really, really good results. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so dangerous to, as a clinician, just to give your client a one or two piece 
page piece of paper on the low FODMAP diet because how are you meant to know what you can eat or how you're going to structure a meal around this or what about the reintroduction phase? Did you even know there was a reintroduction phase? You know, lots of people say I've been on this low FODMAP diet for 12 months, two years, four years. How can I get off it? And it can develop, it can create a lot of fear around foods as well. So just know it's not something you should do on your own and you should, you deserve better than just a one one piece of paper on foods to avoid and outside of the low FODMAP diet there is so much that can be done mm. I do have a follow-up question so what are the long-term effects on the gut of following a restricted diet or a restricted elimination diet mm, great question we know every single like mouthful of food that you can consume that can change the composition of your gut bacteria so we know within a 48 hour period of time you can almost completely change the composition of your bacteria wow. yeah it's fascinating it's cool. so imagine cutting out fodmaps for two weeks you know the changes that we can experience there after six weeks which is the maximum time we recommend someone do the low fodmap diet but if you've cut these foods out for years and years, you can significantly reduce the diversity of bacteria that live in your gut. Um, and the truth is onion and garlic aren't actually bad for you. They're really good for your gut health because they're high in prebiotic fibers. They can just cause some uncomfortable symptoms as you eat them and as they pass through your digestive system. So the, I guess, effects of reducing FODMAPs long-term, it can really impact your gut microbiome. It limits your social life because you don't feel like you can eat out as often. You know, you feel like other people can't prepare a meal for you because you're not sure what's going to be in it. Um, and then it develops, you can develop a lot of fear around food. You know, mm. if you've cut something out for two years, you're terrified to bring it back in. Thought patterns and worries and clients with disordered eating, even separate from having gut concerns. Mm. And as another follow-up question, can you tell us a little bit about how the gut-brain axis works in within the IBS population? And what um, is the gut-brain axis? <laughs> absolutely great question. So we now know that there is this huge communication channel between your gut and your brain. We call it the gut-brain axis or the vagus nerve. And we know that irritable bowel syndrome is actually often a you know miscommunication between these two organs that we have, you know, stress that we experience in our brain often translates into uncomfortable gut symptoms. I don't know if you've ever had a test or a podcast recording, <laughs> um, something that stresses you out a little bit and all of a sudden you've got to go to the restroom because mm. you're so uncomfortable. Um, and that's Those pre-exam bell motions. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's a function of the gut-brain communication that we have. Um, so that can be a part of IBS management as well. It's not just about the food that you're putting through your digestive system, but also the way your gut and your brain communicate. I always think about like when you're nervous for something, you get like butterflies in your stomach or it's probably not actually your stomach. Yeah, yeah it's your, um, but, you know, your brain chatting. It's your brain chatting. Yeah, it's not actually anything happening down there. It's quite interesting. Mm. Um, and we just want to get um, a little bit of an opinion on some supplements. So online especially, there are so many different supplements out there. Everything, especially in, I think recently, there's just been this massive surge of everything related to gut health. Um, so we just wanted to have a chat about a couple of supplements that we see um, marketed specifically for gut health and whether you can tell us about whether they're actually legit, like whether people should be taking them or whether, you know, it's just kind of a little bit of a marketing ploy. So the first one is L-glutamine. Mm, excellent. This one gets thrown around a lot. Um, I hear about it a lot through my clients. I also see a lot of it online and it's mixed into other supplements um, that have a whole bunch of ingredients. L-glutamine can actually be quite beneficial. It can help to fuel the, the 
it can help to fuel the cells that line the intestine. So it actually can help to reduce inflammation um, and improve digestion. But the clinical dose necessary is five grams three times per day. Mm, and if you have a look at a lot. it's a lot. If you have a look at some supplements on the shelves that have L-glutamine and claim to help with gut health or digestion, whatever it is, the dosage might be two grams. Mm -hmm. So you need to have, what's that, like seven serves of that product per day if you're going to get to that clinical dose. And what we found in research is if you get to that clinical dose, it's only going to help people with more diarrhea predominant symptoms in any case. So it's not shown yet to be beneficial for constipation. So it's something that can be helpful, Mm. but it's going to be an expensive supplement that you're going to use for a long period of time. And I know that there's a lot more that you can do without relying on a supplement, but that's probably one of the ones that does have a good level of evidence behind it. Um, but the dosage, it's large. You have to take it regularly. Mm. Is it something that you can keep up? I don't know. Mm, yeah. Cause, probably unsustainable. Yeah. Mostly everything I've seen is just people taking it in their casual morning smoothie and they're probably not hitting that five grams three times a day at all. Mm, mm, exactly. Speaking of um, popular powders and things, what are your thoughts on gut right? Mm. Another popular supplement, lots of people take this one as well or come to me asking questions about it. Looking at the ingredients list, there are so many things in there. Um, Half of them, I'm not really sure what they are and what they do, but all I know is that they're untested from a FODMAP perspective. You know, they could be causing more issues than it's actually worth. And there's not that many ingredients in there that I would recommend taking for gut issues and to actually um, improve your gut function, especially if you have inflammation. irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease Um, but there's some prebiotic components in there meaning that it can help to stimulate the bacteria in your gut to multiply and um, be more diverse but again you can get prebiotics from oats yeah from asparagus apples you know stuff that's probably in your diet already and a fair bit cheaper a lot cheaper Mm, yeah because that's i guess the thing is like supplements are often marketed to be like oh you need to have this every day as part of your wellness or health routine your gut health plan yeah you look at the um instructions on this product and sorry atp i'm slamming you here (laughs) it's you know they set up a program so that you take the supplement every single day Mm. and then you commit to it and you buy another tub and Mm. another tub and you know and you're a customer for life you're a customer for life and has your gut actually felt better i'm not sure Mm, how can people know whether a product is actually helping or if it's a placebo effect great question hard to know i guess Mm. um one thing that we often recommend to clients is just to try and start with one change at a time if they are wanting to test something provided that it's a relatively harmless supplement and is evidence-based if you can check that it is um, such as a probiotic not also changing five other things in your diet and lifestyle at the same time and then doing that for a period like a month and then if you have improved symptoms great Mm. um and then if you don't have improved symptoms Mm. might not be working for you potentially yeah i actually 100 percent agree with that if you wanted to start a supplement like you said relatively harmless um why don't you do it 30 days give it a try wait until the bottle is ended or you're out of that particular supplement and then see how you feel if you stop taking it Mm. you know what happens then one thing i'd probably add to that as well is it's probably worthwhile to do your own gut symptom evaluation form because it's very difficult to remember what your gut symptoms were like a month ago so kind of Mm. seeing where you are it's hard to remember yesterday you know what i mean yeah yep i think that's great yeah so kind of seeing where you are bloating abdominal pain diarrhea constipation things like that Mm. um and then assessing that over the course of time 
I mean, that being said, and I'm sure you agree, Chelsea, supplements are like the tippy point of the pyramid in mm. terms of managing gut symptoms. So you would have probably exhausted all other avenues, mm. ideally with a dietitian, before trying supplements. And then our last question about um, supplement powders, what are your thoughts or opinion and I guess not opinion, evidence-based information on prebiotic powders? Prebiotic powders are in there because some will have inulin or chicory root or fructo oligosaccharides or FOS for short. They're going to be super high FODMAP and some people will tolerate them. It will be no problem, but others with irritable bowel syndrome might find they trigger symptoms. There are some other types of prebiotic powders like partially hydrolyzed guar gum, much easier on the gut, can be really helpful for people with IBS or other gut issues. Um, But again, is it necessary? Is it going to be the icing on the cake or is it um, really going to make that much of a difference from, you know, a symptom perspective or can we strip it back and look at the diet and lifestyle first? Mm, So lots of things to think about. And I guess you did mention probiotics there. A lot of people are on probiotics too, and I find that people just take them just because they feel like it's a good thing. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about probiotics, whether Mm. we should actually be taking them? Mm, Absolutely. So with all of my clients, I do not recommend a probiotic until the low FODMAP process is complete if they're going down that route. Um, And then even in that final stage, you know, I give them a suggestion as to what would be best suited for them and what clinical dose they should be taking. Um, But even then I say, you know, if you don't think this is necessary, this is just an add on. This is the icing on the cake. Um, So there's a few particular strains of bacteria really helpful for particular symptoms, but you need to have that exact strain. Um, You also need to have a very specific dose of bacteria as well. Um, And I guess the thing to keep in mind, these probiotics, they're not going to populate your gut. They're going to benefit as they pass through your digestive system. And if you don't take them consistently, you don't get that consistent effect as well. So again, it could be something that becomes an expensive habit. Um, And is there something else that you could be doing that would be more worthwhile your time? One suggestion that I have for my clients is include more probiotic rich foods in your diet as well. And then you get the diversity of some plant-based foods. You get the diversity of bacteria as well. And maybe that's going to have a more beneficial effect and it might be more sustainable and enjoyable long-term too. And maybe it's even cheaper. And can you give a few examples of probiotic rich food? Yes, absolutely. So some of my favorite ones are protein bound probiotics. So I love things like yogurts and kefir because they have that protein, which helps them survive things like the stomach acid. Um, but of course, we've got some plant based options as well, options as well, like miso paste. We have kimchi, um, kombucha, sauerkraut. The evidence is just a little bit weaker um, for the benefit from these products. Mm, awesome. So in all in all, you know, it could be beneficial, but don't do it when you're starting a low FODMAP diet process or trying to work on your kind of gut symptoms. Mm-hmm. And an important takeaway that you mentioned for listeners is that the effect of probiotics is short lived, whereas other diet and lifestyle changes would be longer lived. Mm. Yes. Um, okay. So to wrap it all up in a neat little bow, we would love to know what is something that you wish everyone knew about gut health? If you could just tell the world something about gut health, what would it be? I want you to keep in mind that with every mouthful that you take, you can change your gut microbiome and really what you should be striving for if you want good gut health is diversity within your diet. So we know one of our biggest international gut studies found that people that were having more diversity within the plant-based foods, they had better gut health outcomes and more metabolically active 
gut microbiome. So, you know, change up the fruits and vegetables that you have each week, include nuts and seeds and grains, use different herbs and spices as well so that you can give your gut bacteria different fiber to ferment on and so that they can be happy and diverse. So variety, variety, variety. Variety is the spice of life. That was beautiful. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Chelsea. It's been so great having you. Um, If our listeners want to learn more about you or find out where you're located on social media, where can they find you? Of course, um, probably the best place to touch base is Instagram. I share a lot of free advice over there. So my handle is um, at IBS underscore dietitian. You can find me on TikTok. The handle is exactly the same. Um, And you can get to know me a little bit better and learn more about me and I guess the way that I do things. Awesome. Well, definitely check her out. Her content is absolutely fantastic and very funny as well. She has a lot of funny poo jokes. (laughs) Thank you again for listening to another episode of the Embody Health Podcast. Don't forget if you've enjoyed the episode to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us on Instagram at Embody Health and TikTok as well. And we'll see you next episode. Bye. Bye.